If you have your Bibles with you, why not turn up to it? It should be on the screen behind me. Um, but if you've got your Bibles there, that's great. Matthew tw- chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through all the arid places, seeking rest, and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This, it, this is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointed to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whomever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this evening to see something new in this passage, and open our hearts to hear from you and to be changed by you. Amen. How do you, or how would you, prove the existence of God? How do you prove the non-existence of God? Well, obviously, we believe it's not actually possible to do the second, but if you wanted to do either, where would you start? When your atheist friend is trying to be provocative and demands that you prove that God is actually there, or the Bible is actually God's word, or that Jesus is God, how do you answer them? Just think for a second, what would you say? But then think, how would they respond to what you say? Can you imagine their comeback? Well, Jesus was faced with exactly that challenge in our passage tonight. And we're going to look at it in a minute. But before that, and this is possibly a first, it's certainly the first time I have ever used this man's opinion in a sermon. But we're going to hear what Richard Dawkins has to say. Oh, hopefully. What are the five best reasons why there... Oh, 
What are the five best reasons why there is no God? What are the five reasons why there are no fairies? The, the onus is not upon an atheist to say why there is not something. The onus is on a theist to say why there is. Uh, having said that, it is a very interesting question because a universe with a God would be a very different kind of universe than one without. So the most important reason is there simply are no reasons for the existence of a God. So uh, the, the, the reasons against then would have to be you tick off on your fingers one by one the, the alleged reasons why there should be a God, such as the argument from design. Things look so beautifully designed, bananas and apples and things like that, and humans and, and kangaroos and so on. And they look as though they've been designed because that's what Darwinian natural selection does. It makes them look as though they're designed. Uh, it produces a very good simulacrum of design. I think that's the most important reason against that Darwin has exploded once and for all the argument from design. Uh, other reasons that have been offered, for example, people claim to have a subjective experience, a personal experience of God. Well, we all know how easily people are fooled, we all know how easily people hallucinate, how they easily they imagine, how easily they dream. Uh, so that's an extremely poor argument in favour of the existence of a God. Um, what other arguments are there? The argument from first cause, well that shoots itself in the foot because if you're going to postulate a God as a first cause, you've then got a really big problem explaining where the God came from. The whole point of the Darwinian enterprise is that it explains how you can get complexity and the illusion of design from primordial simplicity. So the argument from first cause shoots itself in the foot. Um, Pascal's wager, uh, you, you're better off betting that there is a God because if you lose the bet then you go to hell. That's a silly argument because it depends on, it, it assumes that you know which God it is for a start. If you bet on Yahweh it turns out to be Baal or Thor, then, then you're in trouble. Um, uh, what else? Um, oh, in any case, even if it was Yahweh, uh, you might well say that Yahweh would rather have somebody honest who thinks for himself rather than somebody who slavishly pretends to believe something. So there are no good arguments in favour of, of, of a God and that's all one needs to say. Dawkins thinks that he can very easily put down any claim we make for the existence of God and he's not alone. And he says at the beginning that the onus isn't on him to prove that God doesn't exist, but on us to prove that he does. And the Pharisees make exactly the same demand of Jesus. They have no intention of uh, proving Jesus isn't who he says he is. It's down to him to prove that he is. Now, to understand what's really going on in this passage, we're going to have to look back a little bit in Matthew 12 to a passage we, we've missed out because Adrian decided not to preach on it last week. So if you've got a Bible next to you or can see one, um, I'm looking at the block um, from verse 22. I'm not going to read it all, but we've missed that section out from 22 to 37. And the Pharisees come to the startling conclusion that um, Jesus isn't getting his power from God. He's getting his power from something else. And they claim that Jesus is only able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. They're afraid that people are beginning to recognize Jesus for who he really is and can see that they, the Pharisees, are losing their grip on the situation. So they make this claim that Jesus is getting his power from Satan in the hope that it will drive people away from him and back to them. 
or at least start to put doubt in their minds. Now, obviously, Jesus has a very easy answer for them, which makes them look pretty foolish. Why would Satan drive his own demons out? A kingdom divided against itself is doomed to fail. Plus, he says, if you say that I can only drive out demons because I'm using the power of Satan, how are your people driving out demons? Because they claim to be able to do the same thing. And then in verse 30, he's incredibly blunt with them. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. And he goes on, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The warning is clear. If you go about claiming that I'm using the power of Satan, you are in trouble, serious trouble, trouble that not even Jesus can get you out of. Verse 36 goes on to say, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now some versions then begin our passage tonight by saying, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law answered him. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. At face value, it looks as though they're being respectful as they call him teacher, and they're genuinely asking them, asking him to show them his power. But we know enough about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to know that is never going to be the case. No, by calling him teacher, after the conversation that's just gone, they now sound sarcastic. Okay then, teacher, show us something. Prove that you're working by God's power, not Satan's. The demand is actually an angry response to what they know he's just said about them, not a desire to be convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. The irony, of course, is that they have seen sign after sign. It's some of those signs they're complaining about. They've watched him perform miracle after miracle, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. He's given sight to the blind and made the mute speak. Now, I will admit that some of those were supposed to be secret. Some of those no one was supposed to know about. People were told not to tell anyone else. But we also know that they completely ignored that instruction. These miracles have been performed in many, many towns, but it did not lead to repentance. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have heard Jesus denounce the places where he's performed miracles and warn them of a fate worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their unbelief. And so the Pharisees are not simply asking for another miracle to help them believe. The word used for sign here is a Greek word, semiano, which is used for an act so amazing, so stupendous, that it leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Basically, they're saying, yes, 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 it's all very clever, but prove it. Really prove it. Prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are who you say you are. They don't really want him to. 
They don't actually want to be convinced because deep down they know that such a knowledge will demand a response very different from what they're giving him at the moment. They're trying to back him into a corner where he has to say, well, actually, I can't prove it. You're just going to have to trust me. At which point they can denounce him as a charlatan, a fake. No better than a politician unable to back up his claims or carry through on his promises. Jesus responds in two ways, both of which should have taken them by surprise. Firstly, he accuses them of being wicked and adulterous. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. That's not how God's people behave. God has proven his power and might and faithfulness to Israel time and time again. The world demands proof. The world looks for signs. If you're doing the same, you have crossed a line. But secondly, he says they will get a sign. They'll get exactly what they're asking for. They will get their act so stupendous that it leaves no room for doubt, but they will only get one. The sign of Jonah. Jesus says Jonah was in the fish for three days, but lived. And he says, I'm going to do the same. I will lie in the ground for three days, not forever. He's telling them that he will rise again. He knows they plan to kill him, but he will rise again. And that resurrection is the only sign they will be given. It will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. The tragedy is that we know they ignored that sign too. And Jesus shows them just how foolish that is by comparing them to the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba. The Ninevites were utterly wicked, thoroughly depraved, and marked for destruction because of their sinfulness. But they listened to Jonah's entirely unconvincing, not entirely accurate message from God and repented. The Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's great wisdom and traveled from the other end of the earth to listen to him. And when she did, she praised God for his great gift of wisdom to Solomon. Jesus says the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba both heard God speaking through the words of men and they responded. And so at the day of judgment, they will stand in condemnation of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and everyone else who's rejected Jesus. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have heard the words of God in his son, the voice of God, sorry, in the words of his son. have heard the voice of God and they dismissed it. They had been shown true wisdom, teaching that came with incredible authority, and not at the other end of the earth, on their own doorstep. And they had rejected it. They have ignored God's own voice. They will take no notice of the only sign they really need, and so will be judged. We live in a wicked and adulterous generation. And a generation that has a strange relationship with proof. 
We take what we're told by so many in power as being at least something approximating to the truth without really demanding that they prove it. We are amazed by new scientific claims without really asking for proof, mainly because we know we won't really understand what they're talking about. Higgs boson, for example. Does anyone, apart from Seth, really know what they're doing or why? We believe everything Wikipedia or the Daily Mail tell us. We used to believe in innocent until proven guilty. Unless, of course, you're a celebrity accused of child abuse, and then it is up to you to prove your innocence. And the same thing has happened with faith. The demand is now not that the world proves God doesn't exist, but that Christians prove he does. However, it might be more obvious now than it used to be. But neither this call for proof of what we believe, nor our response to the question is in fact anything new. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, our response to the demand for proof usually depends on who is asking the question. So when challenged by someone who claims that science has disproved God, we respond by trying to demonstrate that nothing claimed about the origins of life on earth or the existence of the universe itself either goes against what the Bible says or disproves anything about God. In fact, we say it just proves God more. But in Romans, Paul says we don't need to do that because it's already obvious. He says what may be made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If we're challenged by someone who claims to have discovered the power of Buddhist meditation or yoga or Reiki or whatever, which means that God is now superfluous, we know that a scientific approach isn't going to help. So it's much more likely that we will talk about our feelings and inner peace and the release of knowing that someone else is in control. But as Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 2, he says there is only one thing we need to know. Only one thing that matters. He says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The world may well demand a sign. It will ask for proof, but it has been given the only sign it needs. The resurrection of the crucified Christ. The onus is on them and us to respond to that sign, not demand more.
And if we return to Matthew 12, Jesus lays out very clearly the pitfalls of a half-hearted response and the benefits of a whole-hearted one. So firstly, what does a half-hearted response lead to? Well, to demonstrate this, Jesus uses a little parable about an impure spirit. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. Israel had been rebellious and adulterous since the day they left Egypt. And as a result, had been exiled. Only a few had returned, but their time in exile had been to clean out the house, as it were. They returned supposedly restored to right relationship with God. Through the exile, God had cleared out all the dross and turned their hearts back to him. But they couldn't make it stick. And they slid into rebellion and adultery with other gods once again, to the point where Jesus could now again call them a wicked and adulterous generation. The problem is, he says through this parable, is that they cleaned out the rubbish, swept everything clean, put their hearts in order, and then left them to gather dust. So the spirits of rebellion and adultery that they'd cleared away came back and brought friends. The fact that Jesus says the original spirit brought back seven others means what? Come on, Revelation people, you know this. What does it mean? Seven. Complete. By not filling their hearts with things of God, they, when they cleaned the cobwebs away, they had left themselves open to be totally overtaken by evil. And there's a cautionary tale here for us. When we work at clearing out the dross in our lives, do we ever think about what we're going to put in its place? So, for example, think about Lent. A lot of what gets given up during Lent is just because we know it will be healthier if we don't eat lots of chocolate or have a bottle of wine every day. But sometimes we do give things up because we know they distract us from God and we know we can cope with not having them for six weeks. So we might give up our favorite TV program because we know, actually, it's not a great thing for us to be watching. Or we give up going out for a drink after work on a Friday night because we know that actually we're not a very good witness when we've had a few. But how often do we think about what we're putting in its place? I wonder how many people could genuinely say that when they gave up a particular activity for Lent, they spent the same amount of time on Bible study or prayer. Or did you just find something else to watch on the telly? or something to eat instead of chocolate. Now, Jesus isn't just talking about Lent. He's talking about the everyday. As we try to eliminate those things from our lives that are ungodly, what are we filling the gaps with? Because the warning is that we could actually end up in a worse situation than we started if we're not paying attention. But secondly, Jesus shows us the benefit of wholehearted response as his family arrive. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother 
And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I think these verses have been really misunderstood over the years because I don't think Jesus is dismissing his family. I don't think he's saying that Mary and his brothers are not important. He is not turning them aside. He is not saying he's not bothered with them. On the cross, he shows how much Mary means to him as he asks John to look after her. Now, I think he simply takes the opportunity to show a comparison between those who allow evil to take hold and those who do his will. He's showing that family is more than just shared genes. Family is also more than just belonging to Israel. He's giving a very subtle warning that you can't imagine you're safe just because you belong to Israel. Paul says in Philippians, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness a zealot. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was as Israelite as they came. No one could lay more claim to belonging to the people of God than him. But he says it counted for nothing. It's rubbish. It means nothing. Because none of that made him part of Jesus' family. None of that meant that he could call Jesus brother. What did make that possible was doing all the things Jesus had asked of his followers that we've seen in chapters 11 and 12. Jesus requires that his followers recognize who he really is. Jesus requires his followers to hear God's voice in his words. Jesus requires his followers to do his will and live within the spirit of the law, not slavishly to rules and regulations. And Jesus requires his followers to see the resurrection of the crucified Christ as the only sign we will ever need. Those people will be called family. Those people will be called brother. They will be called sister. They will be welcomed into his ever open arms. They will find a home in his kingdom. I'll give Paul the last word because he puts it much better than I ever could. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen.